Today's scripture is from Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emily. All right, you guys can have a seat. If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is Dave Adair. I'm I'm one of the pastors here at Frontline Church, and we are, I believe, if I'm, I'm keeping count in a correct way, week four, going through the Gospel of Mark. Um, which was the original gospel. It's one of the unique books in all the Bible written specifically, uh, more than a memoir, more than a biography. It is a a God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And Mark was the first one written, and it's action-packed, and it's it's short, and it, it packs a punch. And uh, we're just slowly and intentionally going through this book. I, we're we're going to go through this all the way through um, 2021, and, and the plan is to wrap up around Easter of 2022. And so here we are, uh, week four, with maybe 40-plus weeks to go. <laughs> so we're going to get really familiar with the book of Mark. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for y'all. I invite you to pray for me, and then we're going to dive in. So why don't we pray together? We, we thank you for tonight, God. We thank you for this moment. I thank you for each friend in this room. And we recognize, as we so often do, that it's not by accident that this text is being um, held up before we as a group at this very moment in our lives. We trust that you've led us here in, in spirit. You're here with us and you want to speak to us. And so help us have ears to hear and eyes to see, heads that are lifted up, see the beauty and the glory, the good news. Jesus, who you are and what you've done. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. And together we said, amen. So I had a conversation this week and connected with a friend, and um, it's where I want to kick off. And he just brought up some interesting thoughts that had never really occurred to me, and I want to share them with you. And to, to kick off, I would ask a question. And the question is this. If you were to think of one word to sum up what we call a follower of Jesus, what would that word be? For me, it's Christian, right? I think for most of us, it's it's Christian. What, What do we call someone that follows Jesus Christian? What's interesting, though, is that word Christian only appears in the New Testament three times. And if I understand history correctly, actually it began not within the church, it's something that the church called themselves, but it was, it was a term that originated outside of the church in the Roman Empire. It's kind of a derogatory term, like those Christians, those little Christ followers, and the church was like, that's great, we'll take that on, we'll, we'll adopt that name for ourselves. But what is interesting is that the word disciple appears 252 times in the New Testament. So it's like a, a great difference in, in the word Christian being used to describe a Christ follower and the word disciple being used to describe a Christ follower. And I think it's worth considering why perhaps that, that word Christian, for whatever reason, has seemed to 
be, be used front and center as the common term to describe somebody as it relates to our unique relationship with Jesus and why that term disciple, for whatever reason, has found itself on the fringes and, and less you. Sure, we talk about discipleship as an activity, but we tend not to talk about disciple or use that term to describe someone that follows Jesus this day and age, 2021, in Edmond, Oklahoma. And I don't, you can consider it for yourself. I haven't landed fully on even what I think about this or why, but I think it may be significant. And, and here's something that I'm processing that I would invite you to process. It's when, when I think of the word Christian, or I bet when I ask you to think of the word Christian, what, what comes to mind is that for, for people in our culture, in this moment, in our city, I think of somebody that, that believes certain things, meaning that they hold certain thoughts to be true, certain, certain truth claims about Jesus. For, for instance, a Christian is somebody that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's really important and amazing. But when you hear the word disciple, at least when I hear the word disciple, what comes to mind isn't just what somebody holds true in their head, but the type of life somebody lives in a way that their life is oriented around and shaped and formed in a way that is evident that their primary passion is following Jesus. And I think why this matters is that there's a danger that I think we face where not biblically there's a difference, but functionally in this moment in time, we can think of ourselves Christian because we believe certain things to be true, and yet there can be a divide, and we don't think of ourselves as disciples because our lives are, are shaped in a way where they look different, look like people that are following Jesus, who, who he as king has made a claim upon. And so where we're headed today is this. We've got, we're four weeks into the Gospel of Mark, and we arrive in this, this beautiful part of the story where Jesus, if you remember last week, has proclaimed the kingdom come, and he is the king. This is the, the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is how this book begins. This is about a kingdom that, that has come in Jesus Christ, and he is going to begin to establish that kingdom in his work and in his ministry. And as he begins to proclaim this kingdom, if we were writing this story and making it up, I imagine something epic would happen in this next moment. Okay, a king has arrived. He's proclaimed that he's here. What's going to happen? He's going to build this epic palace or something, right? He's going to do something absolutely extraordinary. And yet what happens is so beautifully ordinary is that, as Emily just read, he, he walks along the banks of a sea, and he, in authority, begins to call fishermen to follow him. And although this passage is short and direct, which is very much Mark's writing style, as we're going to continue to see over this next year, it's filled with some really deep, fundamental, essential elements of, of what it means to really follow Jesus. So as we look at this story, it's not just merely the story of Simon, who's the apostle of Peter. Um, it's not just Peter's story. It's not just Andrew's story or, or John or James's story, although it, it is that. But we also need to, to view this through the lens of our own story. The story gives us insight into our own call to follow Jesus. 
So if you're here tonight and you're just exploring the claims of Christianity and you want to learn more about the Bible and, and what the Bible claims about Jesus, it's, I'm, I'm so happy you're here because I hope that you would be surprised. When you're going to see this story, I hope that you see that, that maybe what you expect following Jesus entails is, is not quite what it is, and it's even better than you dare to dream. It costs a whole lot. It's going to ask a whole lot of you, but it's far richer and deeper than we could ever imagine. And if you're perhaps like me and you would call yourself a Christian, a disciple, and, and you have been following Jesus for a, a long time, my hope is that tonight we're reminded of some beautiful things about who we are in Christ and, and what that, that means for us, some things that are at the very heart of our Christianity. So I want to show us five things in our text today that tell us what it means when Jesus calls us to follow him. Five things. And the first is this. When we're called to follow Jesus, it means we're called because we're chosen. Let me point us back to the text just here for a minute. Look at verse 16 with me. Mark writes, Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Let's skip down to verse 19. And going a little farther, he saw James. He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. Now, it's important to know, and it's not evident here in the text, but it's important, it's important to know in this moment in history, in this day and age, in antiquity, in, in Israel, if you were a, a, a Jewish man, you, if you wanted to study under a rabbi, if you desired to follow a spiritual teacher, what you were going to do is you were actually going to seek them out. You were going to go through these tears as a child, and if you kind of made these series of cuts, right, and you passed the grade, eventually you would be considered, hey, the cream of the crop, that you show a lot of talent and potential, a lot of gifting as it relates to, to your spirituality, and if you are the best of the best, then you get the opportunity to present yourself to a rabbi a teacher that you would desire to follow. You sought them out and you would apply, in a sense, to his rabbinical school and, and, and you would approach him and you would ask him if you could follow him and, and you would hope that he would receive and accept you. And so in light of that, we need to come back and see what Jesus is doing right here because he's doing something totally different as it relates to his disciples. He's turned that whole concept on its head and he what? He... This text drills it in. He sees Simon and Andrew. He, he sees James and John. He moves towards these men, and he calls them to follow him. He sees them, and he chooses them. He sees them in their everyday life, how they really are, just going about their business as fishermen. Jesus later on is going to be talking to these men towards the end of his ministry, right before he's about to go to the cross. And in John 15, verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the name, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. See, Jesus moves towards these men when they're not moving towards him. He, he sees these men when they're not looking for, for him. He finds these men 
when they're not seeking out Jesus. And this is why we should care about this in a really beautiful way. This is true of us today. Our journey with Jesus doesn't start with us seeing him and seeking him first. It starts with him seeing us, seeking us, choosing us. And what's really encouraging, too, is that these men aren't being chosen by Jesus because they're so great. They're being chosen because he's so great. They're not being chosen, and Jesus doesn't see them because they're just the, the perfect men that he needs. He sees them because he's perfect in his love, and he's choosing them because he's, he's perfect in his grace. See, he, Jesus knows what he's getting. As we continue through the Gospel of Mark, what we're going to see really clearly is that these guys are deeply flawed. They're sinful. They're broken. You know, Peter, right, who he's calling first. Peter is like, what's so beautiful about the Gospel of Mark is that to remind you guys where we started, John Mark wrote this gospel inspired by the Spirit, and his primary source, every scholar believes, is the Apostle Peter, because John Mark was, was Peter, Simon in this text, is the same guy, two names, Simon Peter, uh, that he, his primary source for this gospel was Peter himself telling John these stories, and what's so beautiful about the gospel of Mark is that Peter looks so bad. So Peter's telling these stories not like to make himself look better. He's showing that he misses it again and again. Peter tries to talk Jesus out of going to the cross to die for his sins in the Gospel of Mark. Peter rejects Jesus in his deepest moment of need as he's on the cross and denies him three times. And yet, knowing how stubborn Peter was and how prideful and, and how he was going to miss it again and again, Jesus still sees him and chooses him. Or, or take James and John, these brothers, right? <laughs> There's a moment in Luke chapter 9 where James and John are on this missionary trip into a city with Jesus, and it doesn't go so well. They don't, like, receive the good news of who Jesus is. And so on the way out, James and John turn to Jesus, and they're like, hey, let us call down fire from heaven and kill everybody in the village. Jesus is like, No. You know, like, you guys have a lot to learn about me and about why I came. You know, like, that is not what we're here to do. And yet, these stubborn guys are who Jesus chooses, these prideful, arrogant young men. There's, there's also a moment later on in the ministry of Jesus where James and John, this is fitting for Mother's Day, they, they send their mom on a secret mission to ask Jesus for like special priority and leadership in his ministry. <laughs> the other like, hey mom, go ask Jesus if he'll give us like a special seat next to him in his kingdom. You know, like these guys don't get it on so many levels and yet Jesus knows their flaws, he knows their weaknesses, he knows their sin. He sees them as they truly are, things that are really gross about them, things that are glorious, their strengths, their, the, the ways they bear the image of God in unique ways, and yet the good and the bad, he sees it all, and he chooses them all the same. He wants them. Anytime I come to a portion of Scripture where you see just Jesus desiring and choosing and wanting somebody, uh, my heart and my mind often go back to this story um, that was a personal story I, I heard from a pastor I, I really love and respect. He passed away years ago, but his name's Dave Busby. And, and Dave shared the story about his own life, and I'll, I'll share it with you. 
So I think it helps understand the beauty of what's happening here. Um, Dave had some physical limitations and challenges, some disabilities. Um, and as he got older, they, be, they became more severe, but I, I think they were reality even in his, in his childhood. And he had an older brother, and his older brother um, was uh, physically very different than Dave in the sense of, like, he was hands down the best athlete in the city that Dave grew up in. And, and the sport of choice in the city they grew up in was basketball. That's what all the best athletes played. That's what all the, the guys were into. And so his, his brother was a senior in high school when he was in eighth grade, five years older. And that summer, heading into his brother's senior year, um, it, it, all the time, it started that summer and it continued through the year, uh, all these high school boys would descend on David's house and Dave's brother's house every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. to the tune of like 24 high school boys. And they had a basketball court, a, a, a big uh, basketball court at their house, and they would just play hours of pickup basketball. And Dave... Although his, his brother, the senior, was the best basketball player in the city, Dave describes himself as the worst basketball player of all time. Like, just so bad, so bad. And, and yet one day he woke up on a Saturday and he thought to himself, I want to play basketball with the guys. And so he headed out and, and kind of just mingled in and, and got in the crowd of guys, right? And he describes them as these, like, giant, hairy, you know, physical, like, senior boys. And, and here he is, just shirtless, like, so skinny. And he's 12 years old, and he's just like, hey, what's that? You know, trying to fit in. And, uh, and it comes time where they're going to pick teams. And his brother, being the best basketball player, obviously won the opportunity to be first captain. And so they all line up. And his, Dave is, his, his, his big brother, Dave's big brother, is captain one, gets first pick. There's another guy that's captain two. And then you've got 23 other high school boys lined up. And then this really skinny, helpless, hopeless 12-year-old boy who can't get the ball to the rim. And he describes the moment where his brother looks at the line and he, his big brother points his finger and he goes down the line and he says, I have first pick. And with my first pick, and then his finger stops on David's little brother. And he says, I have first pick, Dave, and I pick you. And Dave describes that moment as, uh, as the weight of the joy rests on him of being chosen by his big brother. That he begins to walk to stand next to his brother. And somewhere along the line, he, he, he changes direction from just going to stand next to his big brother, and he, he can't even control himself. He just walks right up to his brother and lays his head in his chest, and he begins to cry and wraps his arms around him and begins to wet his big brother's shirt with his tears. And Dave's big brother just drapes his arm around his younger brother as he cries and keeps on picking his team and just holds him. And I heard him tell that story as a 55-year-old man. So it happened 33 years before. And as he told that story, he said, even to this day, 33 years later, I could taste the sweetness of being chosen first by my big brother. I can taste the joy of being wanted. I bring up that story, and I think why it has always stuck with me 
is because it just gives us a glimpse of the heart of Jesus that we see in this text, that Jesus is the ultimate, the greatest, the, the perfect big brother. And, and our sinfulness and our brokenness and our weakness, he sees us, he chooses us, he wants us. He loves you, he calls you. And that's where discipleship following Jesus begins. That's the first thing. To be called is to be chosen. The second thing we need to see is, is when, when Jesus calls us to follow him, we're called to be close. Look at verse 17 with me. Jesus, and Jesus said to them, follow me. Stop there. Like, right, to know and follow Jesus is actually the heartbeat of discipleship. And I think it's significant that first and foremost, when, when Jesus is, is calling these men, he's not calling them to, to have a set of instructions or rules to follow. First and foremost, he's giving of himself. He's saying, follow me, come and be close to me. And there are beliefs and doctrines and, and right theologies that are, and practices that are really important and necessary to, to follow Jesus. But what we see in this text is that what Christ is showing is that, that first and foremost, what he's calling us to is to know him, to follow him, to be, to be close to him. And the truth and the good news of Christianity is that, that that same call that happened in this story, it's still happening today because Jesus is alive. He's sitting in his throne. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's still calling us today to, to follow him. He's still saying, follow me. I, I uh, last night got to officiate a wedding. And um, it was a beautiful wedding, a, a sweet young couple. And it was a, that's an extraordinary day, right? If you're getting married, that's one of the most significant days of your life. And my primary message that I was just trying to just drive home again and again in that wedding ceremony and, and even leading up to that ceremony was, hey, this couple, I want you to know that, that what you need to understand is your marriage is primarily, there's a bunch of beautiful stuff about marriage, but your marriage is primarily about one thing, and it's about following Jesus and you loving each other in a way that your love reflects the love of God. You're a picture of how Christ loves the church and how church, the church loves Christ. And so in, in big and extraordinary days, on big and extraordinary days, what we, we need to know and hear is that, man, our, our call is to follow Jesus. But, you know, and they're in Maui right now, or they're at least going to wake up tomorrow and be in Maui, which makes me really jealous, to be honest. Um, but I'm going to wake up on Monday and, like, have soccer practices to take my kids to and, like, a whole lot of emails that I, I'm going to get in trouble because I'm behind on. And, like, there's, I'm just going to have a, have a Monday waiting for me. Some of those things are beautiful. Some of those things are, are not so beautiful. But and I, I, I suspect that your Monday is probably going to look a little bit like that. Not a lot of Mauis in our Mondays for most of us in this room. Yet, in the uneventful every day, that's still and especially our charge, our invitation, our call from Jesus to follow me in the big and the small. This is the beauty of what that means for us today is that Jesus promised he wouldn't leave us alone. How do we do that? How do we feel close to Jesus on a Monday, right? Or, or when life is hard or where we feel like we're under attack or where things aren't, aren't going our way and when we, we have a sick heart because hope's been deferred. John 14, Jesus says to his friends, picking up in verse 15, 
He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it's neither seen him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So what's our our hope to to follow Jesus and know his closeness in 2021 in Edmond, Oklahoma, that that Christ has made an extraordinary promise that if we're in Christ, we know to be true, which is it's through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that same spirit that, that 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 helped rise Christ from the dead, that same spirit, he dwells in us and that same power, grace upon grace, wonder upon wonder, has made our very lives, our very spirits, his home. This is really, really good news. So the Holy Spirit guides us and grows us and shapes us and helps us understand God's word and keeps us close. That's the very promise of Jesus. The third thing we need to see in this text is the call to follow Jesus means that we're called to be commissioned. We have a purpose. We have a, a grand plan that, that is God's kingdom that we're invited into. Look at verse 17. Again, Jesus said to them, follow me. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say, and I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus calls these men to himself, but he also calls them for himself, for his mission, his purposes. And this phrase, it actually harkens back, fishers of men. Actually, it's found in the Old Testament. And when it's spoken about in the Old Testament, it's about really judgment against evil in the world. And so when the Old Testament speaks about being fishers of men, it's actually a rescue mission. It's a redemption mission. So Jesus is calling back to the promises of God and saying, hey, my plan is to come and I came to seek and save the lost, he's going to say in this book. He came to, to serve and not be served. He came to lay his life down as a ransom for many. And I'm inviting you as my followers to be a part of that grand plan by, by demonstrating my kingdom through love and service, by proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Your primary concern, he's saying to these men, was fishing, but I'm going to shape and form you to have a a purpose that's far richer than just that. You're actually going to be a part of my work to to save the souls of women and men because I'm going to speak in you and through you. And what struck me this week is I think that in our city and in our culture, where, where we drift and where we're nudged is, is to probably, if we're Christians, really get excited about our call to Jesus. And the idea of being close to him and receiving from him and knowing that, that love and that presence is, is always beautiful and something that we get excited and passionate about. But it's harder to be passionate and excited and obedient about our call for Jesus. Meaning that we want to know his love and have a relationship, but we don't really care about what he cares about as much as he does, or maybe even at all. His mission for the lost and the hurting, care for the the poor or loving others or, or giving forgiveness, loving our enemies. And I think what happens when we just want to receive the love of God and be close to him, but we, we reject a, a call to God to, to live out his mission that he's called us to, is that our spiritual lives become stagnant 
and lifeless because lifeless, we're just taking and taking and taking and we're never giving or pouring out. And I think that's a danger to us, especially in a city like this that can be so appealing as it relates to our comfort and our consumerism. May God help us, right? I think healthy Christianity, healthy discipleship looks like one foot firmly planted on on the assurance that we are called to Jesus. A real personal relationship and another foot firmly planted in our call for Jesus that we have a, a purpose to live out for his glory that by his grace he's invited us into. The fourth thing that we need to see here is being called to follow Jesus means we're called to change priorities. Look at uh, verse 18. Speaking of, of Simon and Andrew, Mark says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little farther, they saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and, and followed him. Now, this, this is striking, right? It, it should be if we stop and we take it in. I think when I was younger and I, I read this text, I thought that, you know, I'm such a bad fisherman, I just project that everybody's a bad fisherman onto them. And so I'm like, well, their job must have been awful, right? And so when Jesus comes along and he's like, hey, follow me, they were like, sweet, we've been waiting for a job that's not awful. This has been horrible. And so this is kind of like an unexpected, like LinkedIn job offer. And I get to quit my job and get a raise and, and follow Jesus. This is way better, right? That's not what we see in this text. And it's, it wasn't reality likely. This wasn't some dead-end job they were eager to leave. They were successful small business owners. And, and more than that, they were a part of a family business, which, if you ever get to be a part of, can be a real joy. You get to work closely with the people that you love the most. And we can see that both their jobs and their families were incredibly important to them, as, as they should be. Yet what we see is Jesus approaches these men, and he calls to them, And it's that phrase that is happening again and again and again in the book of Mark. Immediately, immediately. And and the wonder that we see is that immediately both of these sets of brothers, they, they walk away from these highly important aspects of their life to follow Jesus. And I think it's important to stop and recognize that these men don't reject these things. Like, there are going to be moments where these brothers are fishing again with Jesus, and they'll, they'll work. And, and certainly, Jesus is about to go to Peter's house before the end of this chapter and, and hang out with his family, so they're not rejecting their family or their work. But what is happening is their work and their family is relativized in comparison to their allegiance and their loyalty and their love to Jesus. And this is a shocking statement about discipleship and what it means to follow him, particularly in a city where I, I might speak for myself, but the two things that I struggle with that are good things that I can make the greatest thing are work and family. And Jesus in the story is saying, hey, those are great, but I'm greater. And so in light of you following me, those fall under my rule as I'm the king and the savior of your life. And see, Jesus doesn't always call people to quit their jobs 
or leave their families for the mission field. Sometimes he might, but, but Jesus always, for each and every person that answers the call to follow him, he always demands that our allegiance and our love for him be the highest of all. And everything else comes after that. Look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, starting there. Jesus says this, whoever loves his mother and his father more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> like, that seems super heavy, right? But it's actually furiously and deeply loving because Jesus knows he knows us to our very depths, and he knows he's the, he's the author of life itself, and he knows how we were made and made to live. And he's saying, look, you, you, you know one way to just crush a relationship? You know how I can just be an awful parent to my child? Is I can put my identity and my hopes and my dreams and all of my purpose on their little shoulders and be like, and, and say, hey, hey, little six-year-old, you be my savior. And that is deeply, that is hateful, actually to my little daughter. And yet, my heart's prone to do it. And I think a child can do that to a parent and a spouse can do that to another spouse. And Jesus is saying, look, I am the only one who has the strength and the love and the authority to be your savior, your God, your king. I take on that weight. I'm the rock that you build your life on. And perhaps the angst or apathy that, that we feel at times is that Jesus is, isn't merely one of many things that we put our hope in and not the ultimate thing. I've got some of my best friends, and, and many of you have some of your best friends, whether they're a part of our church plant that was sent there or they're there through the ministry of student mobilization. I've got a lot of people that are near and dear to this church that do ministry in India. And 98% of the Hindus in this world live in India. And what's challenging about sharing the gospel with someone that's a Hindu is they quite literally have a cabinet of gods in their home most of the time, different gods that they worship. And you can share the gospel and the truth about Jesus with a Hindu, and they can say, that sounds awesome, and they'll take a little cross and they'll put it in their cabinet with all the other gods that they worship and just add Jesus to the mix. Say, he might be helpful. We'll add him to the team of things that I worship. And in conversation with a friend this week, it was interesting because we were talking and, and thought, you know, that actually isn't just a Hindu problem. That's a human problem. And we don't do it in such an explicit way where we've got a cabinet of, of idols that we worship, but we certainly have, uh, at times, we can have a cabinet of idols in our heart. And we can approach our faith in Jesus in a way where we say, hey, I, I really, what I need most is an easy, comfortable marriage, and, and I'll take Jesus along with that because he might be helpful. Or I need to make an X amount of money, and I really need that, and, and some Jesus on the side would be great. Or I need a romantic relationship to fill me and Jesus with that. And we're all prone to add Jesus to other things, be it good things, but we worship him among other idols. And what he's saying in this text, what we see when he calls these disciples is that, that everything, even the best of things, come under his reign and his rule. 
in our life. And lastly, we need to see to be called to follow Jesus means that we're called into close community. And all, all this, this text, I think, shows us that. But what should strike us, particularly if you remember what J.J. preached last week, it's this incredible story of, of Jesus like going into the wilderness for 40 days. Mark uniquely describes the fact that he's surrounded by wild beasts as he does this. And then Satan himself rolls into the wilderness and tempts Jesus. They go toe to toe. And Jesus resists the temptation of Satan himself and then this is glorious, and I can't even wrap my mind around it. Angels themselves from heaven come to minister to Jesus. All that to say, like, if one guy ever could say, you know, like, I can go it alone, you know? I just went toe-to-toe with Satan, came out on top, and, like, angels themselves will come down from heaven to minister to me. Like, Jesus didn't come out of those few days and think, man, you know what I'm missing? I need four fishermen, or my plans are going to fail. You know, I really need Andrew and Simon and James and John or I'm doomed, right? You know, but, but what really is happening here is beautiful. Jesus didn't need community. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't weak without these men. But this is what we must know. At the, at the heart of who God is, is Trinity, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. One God, three persons, I don't know, if you're out in, uh, outside, perhaps, or in, in the lobby, you can't see it, but to your left, there's this, this art, which I really love, and, and some of the other art around here is kind of obvious, and this one, you might scratch your head and be like, what is, what is happening here, right? But this is a, a painting by an artist named Scott Erickson, and that's what he's trying to depict here, is just the beauty of the Trinity, that you have one God, and for all eternity, they, they lived in, in unity, communion, perfect delight, fulfilled, Father, Son, Spirit. And they didn't make creation. They didn't create our world and the universe because they were bored or lonely. They, they delighted as one God in one another. Yet because they were so great and so awesome, out of their union as Father, Son, and Spirit, out of that in love overflowed the creation of all things. And Jesus, in love as a servant, is inviting wonder upon wonder of these four fishermen into that unity and that communion, saying, hey, this is the love that I've known. This is the love that I've given for all time. Before the foundations of the earth, God is love. And the Son of God is there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, extending that love to four fishermen. And yet, this community that he's building to know his love, to to experience his love, this, this community that these men are called into, led by Jesus in the flesh, we will come to see as this gospel continues, it is a hot mess in so many ways. It wasn't perfect. It was really, really messy, really hard. For example, one of these guys that's going to be called to follow Jesus, he's, he's a zealot, which means he was a radical resistor to the Roman Empire. He would do acts of sabotage. He considered himself at war against Rome, a guerrilla fighter to, to be a, a thorn in the side of the Roman Empire. That's one disciple. 
And then Jesus calls another disciple, many actually that are tax collectors, that are there to actually take money from the Jewish people to resource Rome so they can oppress. Like, can you imagine, the? you think masks are divisive? Imagine the political conversations these dudes had around the campfire, right? Like, imagine how contentious. They hated each other on the surface, and yet Jesus is saying, you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me, I love you, and guess what? You're going to love one another. And it might be messy, and you're going to have to give grace and receive grace, and you're going you're gonna to miss it, and it's, it's going to be hard. But I've called you to follow me, and I've called you to follow me in community together. This is good news for us. I, uh, um, this text has a special meaning for me because in 2008, as it relates specifically to, to this call into close community. In 2008, I, I was in the business world. Anna and I had been married about three years. And uh, Frontline had been a, had been a church for three years. And I was just serving in lots of ways. Um, and we loved being a part of this new church, Frontline. Planted in downtown Oklahoma City by my brother-in-law, who I had known and loved for many years, Josh Curry. And there came a a point where Josh was the only person that was full-time doing ministry at the church, and the church was growing a lot. It was like 300, 400 people, one pastor full-time. And so Anna and I had prayed, and long story short, we felt God was calling me to leave my my job as a financial advisor, and just for a little while, we thought, just come and and, and give my um, work to the church full-time to um, just help, because it was growing, and, and Josh needed help. And yet, there was a mentor in my life at the time, and he was a pastor, and he was about 65 years old. And when I was processing that decision with him, um, he said this. He said, you know, David, the truth is, you can't really do church with family. And so I was like, well, I think I'm doomed then, because I feel like God is calling me to to do church with family. I'm supposed to come walk alongside and serve under my brother-in-law, and um, that seemed like what God was calling me to do, yet there's this man that I love and respect, and he's saying, like, yeah, that's just not ever going to work. And he was speaking out of his own hurt and pain, because he had had some real family um, hurt in the midst of church. And so I didn't, I didn't know how to think about it, and I was discouraged, and, and um, by the grace of God, I came to this passage, and it just struck me that, like, oh, wait a minute, like, Jesus is building his church, and he's calling his disciples, and he, he calls two sets of brothers. And what's beautiful about that is if, you've, if you have a brother, like, you know each other really well. You shared a room together. You, you, you have just, you know the nerves. You know the buttons to push. Like no one in a unique way. You, these guys worked together, right? They were family. They were fishermen. Like Simon and Andrew, James and John, those guys knew one another. And yet Jesus doesn't call one, say, hey, Andrew, stay, Simon, come. You guys are too close to really be in community together. I'm building a kingdom where we present our ideal selves and keep one another at arm's length. No, he says, no, you come and you follow me. And the message in this is, hey, the, fact, the, the claim that you can't really do church as family is absolute garbage. The reality is the only way to do church is as family, as the family of God. 
with Christ as a big brother, to, to walk in gospel community under the love of the Heavenly Father, empowered by the Spirit, and loving each other in a way that we actually are invited to be fully known and vulnerable and real and our true selves. And that's why here at the church that, that we really are always constantly holding up the beauty of community groups. And like that church gathering is really important to come and, and worship together and confess and, and, and participate in the ordinances of baptism and, and uh, communion. That's all beautiful and necessary. And, and, and in addition to that, the primary way we're going to be known and exercise our spiritual gifts and receive care and give care and just live out all of those beautiful one another's of scripture is in the midst of gospel community. So maybe, just maybe like... If there's one thing, if you're a Christian, you take away from this message, if you, you're not a part of that yet, I would just present to you that you're missing out on some of the sweetest aspects of what it means to be a disciple because when we're called to follow Jesus, we're called to follow him in close community. Let's stand and pray. Jesus, for my friends who are maybe here tonight just exploring who you are. I pray that you would help them see you. I pray that tonight they would have heard good news and, and the things that are helpful that I shared, would you just plant those in their hearts and things that weren't helpful, just help them forget. But I, I pray that they would, more than anything, hear your call and love, that you want them to be close to you, that you have beautiful purpose for their life that you, you want to be the king of their hearts because their souls are too worthy to give to anything else. You want them to know your love and the love of, of true spiritual family. Would you help them see the good news of who you are and what you've done? Help them repent of their sins, run away from running their own life and, and give their life to you and in, do so, in doing so, may they find it. for disciples, for Christians who've been following you maybe for a little while, maybe for years and years and years. And we'd be struck by the good news of what following you means. And we remember the high cost, but the, the richness and the beauty. There's no other place we'd ever want to go. So would you deepen our hearts in love and help us see the, the beauty once again of what it means to follow you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your name. And God's people say, amen.